Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. For the first time since 2019, 10x9 was back in beautiful Bangor in County Down. And it was a lovely August evening, and we were the guests of the new arts venue there, the Courthouse, for nine true stories on the theme, Proud. He looked at us over his glasses with a twinkle in his eye and said, but if we do it ourselves, nobody will know. And a plan was hatched. It was only then that I realised there was a large hole in the base of the bin. The stuff that flowed out and down my back wasn't exactly solid, but it wasn't exactly liquid either. We'd shown each other our bits. One afternoon, in that cute, curious and natural way young children do. So get ready for a small act of rebellion, a smelly year on the bins and a bit of biology, County Down style. Okay, just before we start, I did get a complaint about a Santa Claus reference in last week's podcast. I'm sorry, I'm so used to playing to an adult audience and forgot about younger ears. So to be clear, Santa is alive and well in his North Pole workshop, gearing up for December. Okay, let's get started and we've had plenty of married couples over the years tell stories at 10x9, usually at different events. But husband and wife Helen and Campbell Killick both had a story for this evening. Both very different and both brilliant. So I've joined them at the hip. In about nine minutes, you'll hear Campbell. But first, here's Helen. My father was always fiercely proud of being Scottish. So when New Year's Eve or Hogmanay came around, there were peculiar New Year's Eve rituals to be observed. There was the usual Scottish first foot tradition that had my husband Campbell at that time, the only tall, dark-haired man in our family, standing outside the back door, shivering in the cold, clutching a lump of coal, while the rest of us celebrated the midnight countdown in the warmth of the house before welcoming him in. But before we got to that moment, my mum's ritual was to have all the floors spotless. And my dad liked to see in the new year with a new haircut. Maybe it was his excuse to get out of the house while my mum frantically washed floors, but he always booked a haircut for the morning of December the 31st. So he had just been for his Hogmanay trim and was walking back to his car from the barbers when a thunderbolt of a heart attack hit him and he was gone. It was the last day of 2002 and he was 86. In some ways for him, New Year's Eve was a good day to die. He was guaranteed a party every year on the anniversary of his departure with a good few drams of whiskey drunk in his honour. In other ways, it was rubbish. Scotland closes down for days over New Year and the funeral didn't happen for another two weeks. And some days after that, once the family had all dispersed, my dad's ashes arrived from the crematorium in a screw-top tin inside a nondescript cardboard box. You discover things you never knew about your parents when they die. I discovered my dad had prepared every detail of his funeral, what to sing, what to read, who would speak, 
and more importantly, who wouldn't speak. But as he'd always intended to leave his body to medical research, and my mother was having none of that, there were no instructions about what to do after the funeral, nothing about what to do with his mortal remains. And my sister and I had discussed the possibilities. We could have climbed Dunsinan Hill of Macbeth fame behind our village and let the ashes blow over what remains of the Fort of Kings. Or we could go down to the River Tay and let the river carry them away. Dad had never lived more than a mile from the River Tay, despite moving a number of times in his life. He loved the river. He knew its journey from the hills around Loch Tay to its broad estuary in Dundee. He'd spent many hours up to his waist in its cold water, hoping for that teasing twitch of the rod, maybe a decent trout, or on a good day, a very good day, a salmon. Dad's family had fished the river for generations, and his father had taught the children of fishermen and farmers growing up in the fertile river valley, and their children too. It was as if he was made of the same red earth with the river flowing in his veins. But unlike Dad, my mum was keen that the world had some kind of record of his life and that his name was written somewhere that could be seen by anyone who cared to look. So in the end, we decided to bury the ashes at his parents' grave in our local church graveyard. His name could be added to the gravestone. The graveyard surrounds the village church and sits on a ridge overlooking the Carse, the broad valley of the Silvery Tay. It seemed appropriate. So we discussed the idea with Bert, the local undertaker. Bert was the village joiner who doubled up as undertaker when necessary. He had a look of Santa Claus about him with bushy beard and twinkly eyes. He approved of our plan, but he knew the rules. To lift a sod of earth and scatter ashes in a public graveyard required the permission of the local council, who would grant it for a fee of £100. He looked at us over his glasses with a twinkle in his eye and said, but if we do it ourselves, nobody will know. <laughs> and a plan was hatched. Bert came round to collect us early the next morning, wearing his Sunday suit. It was only half a mile to the churchyard, but he felt it was important that he undertook for us from the moment we left the house until we returned. Before getting in the car, he opened the boot to show us his gleaming spade. I'm certain that he cleaned it especially for the occasion. I held onto the cardboard box and my mum sat beside me in the back of the car and I sensed her stealing herself for the next stage of this long farewell. And when we got to the churchyard a few minutes later, Bert left us in the car while he went to reconnoiter. He set off, trying to look as if he was taking an innocent early morning stroll amongst the gravestones in his Sunday suit, but checking carefully out of the corner of his eye for any council workers. There was a triumphant all clear on his return. And so he lifted the spade from the boot and the three of us hurried into the graveyard, trying not to look suspicious. We stood in front of my grandparents' grave, but then we realized there was a flaw in our plan. This was the east coast of Scotland in January. <laughs> the sun was shining, but it was freezing. The wind blew in from the Baltic states across the North Sea and up the Tay Valley. It was the bleak midwinter. Earth was hard as iron. 
Bert attempted to cut into the grass with the edge of his spade, barely a mark. He brought it down with a bit more force. There was a wee dent. And bit by bit, he chiseled away, gradually making an impact on top of the turf. He began to look a bit flushed as he kept bringing the spade down repeatedly, chipping away. It was taking much longer than we'd imagined. There was nothing Mum and I could do to help except keep watch for the arrival of any graveyard workers and say encouraging things and keep dancing from foot to foot to stop frostbite setting in on our toes. The chance of being seen by someone was increasing all the time. But finally, Bert managed to prise off a small frozen tile of turf revealing rich red frozen clay below. I imagine my dad shaking his head. He would have known. He was a gardener. He knew when soil could be dug and when it was best left alone. We looked at each other. Right then, he said, will we go ahead? I passed him the box and he took out the tin. We stood silently, the three of us, for a moment. Mum and I huddled together like two wee dumpy penguins. <laughs> not a word was said. I wondered, should I have prepared something? But it was so cold, I'm not sure any coherent words would have come out of my mouth. Bert looked at us and we nodded anxiously. There was no time for hanging around. So solemnly he unscrewed the tin and knelt down beside the wee hole and with gentleness and care emptied the ashes into the cold ground. From earth we come, to earth we return. I experienced an aching at the finality of this little rebellious act, but a huge sense of relief as the task was finally done and we'd got away with it. And then Bert uttered words that have left me puzzled ever since. Strange, he said, as he tapped the tin to release the final particles of dust. You don't get as much in one of these as you used to. <laughs> and with that, the ceremony was over. I like to think that Dad would have approved of this final addition to his own catalogue of small acts of rebellion against the establishment and that we'd managed to avoid spending £100. <laughs> Bert replaced the sod, I grabbed the spade, and we hurried back to the car, cold right through to our bones, inappropriately giggly, but unexpectedly proud of ourselves. My parents were very proud when I got my first real job. School had been a difficult time for me, but this was a fresh start, a new beginning, and anything was possible. My mum had ironed a crease into my trousers that would benefit a high-powered businessman, but these trousers were part of a boiler suit <laughs> that had the letters NDBC on the chest. I was working for North Down Borough Council. My fresh start was being a bin man. As well as the boiler suit, I got a free pair of boots, a donkey jacket, and a life supply of gloves. Some of you will remember the days before wheelie bins, when your rubbish was held in heavy galvanized dustbins that were collected from your back door. This required a fleet of dustbin carts, each with its own route, driver, and squad of bin men. When a squad finished their route, their day's work was done. Some took their time and finished at five, while others worked quickly and were home earlier. 
There was one notorious squad who ran the entire route, each man part of a finely tuned rubbish collecting machine. They were usually home by mid-afternoon and washed and rested in time to work in a second job as bouncers in the evening. I wasn't part of a regular squad. I was called the spare man. I filled in for absent workers, and when nobody was absent, I swept up litter in Kilcooley housing estate. Anybody here from Kilcooley might remember the glorious days of 1983 when there wasn't a single crisp packet or, <laughs> or cigarette butt to be seen anywhere for miles around. Those were happy days of outside work, good honest labour and occasional cups of tea from grateful residents. The job was meant to come with its own bin trolley, two yellow bins with room for brushes and shovels and litter pickers. Sadly, local kids had set fire to it while my predecessor was having a nap and he woke up to find two large yellow puddles on the pavement. Each morning I was told what my duties would be and I prayed that I wouldn't find myself on the fast bin cart. When the fateful day came, the horror on my face was matched by the disappointment on the faces of my teammates who knew they wouldn't be setting any records with me on board. I was tall and thin. In the 18 years of my life, I had little experience of physical labor. These were scary men. <laughs> in sleeveless boiler suits that showed their tan and muscles and tattoos. In theory, the job wasn't that difficult. You run to the first house, you pick up the bin, you run to the cart, you empty the bin, and you return it before moving on to the next house. What made it complicated was the bin cart never stopped moving, and the huge metallic jaws never stopped chomping which made the task into a high street heptathlon of lifting and carrying and running and emptying. At the first house, my heart was beating fast. My time to prove myself, don't mess up. Thankfully, the bin wasn't too heavy. Up on my shoulder and run, run, run and heave. I really didn't mean to let go of the bin. <laughs> But with all the effort and the gloves and the confusion, I threw the entire thing into the giant jaws and watched as it disappeared. A workmate who saw the thing happen hit the big red button on the back of the cart, red lights flashed, sirens sounded and the bin lorry suddenly stopped. As the whole team watched, the machine was thrown into reverse and it regurgitated newspapers and potato peelings and ash and a flatter version of my bin. <laughs> Without speaking, one of my colleagues lifted a nearby brick and beat the bin back into a more three-dimensional shape before sending me to return it to its home. The atmosphere on the team had become a little tense. <laughs> but thankfully, I managed to complete a few houses without further event. It looked like I was getting the hang of it. 
but I wasn't. <laughs> at the next house, the bin was nowhere to be found. Not at the back door, not round the side of the house, and every second of searching raised my anxiety. Eventually, I found it behind the coal bunker. But this was the heaviest bin I'd ever encountered. It took every ounce of strength I had to hoist the thing onto my shoulder and then half walking, half jogging, get it to the cart. Eventually I caught up and determinedly not letting go, emptied a hundred weight of nutty slack into the jaws <laughs> of the machine. Not waiting for my colleague's reaction, I returned on my heel and replaced the bin where I got it. If you're the Bangor resident who had to do without a couple of weeks' fuel, I'd like to apologise. By late morning, the tension had eased slightly. We were on the final leg through Bangor Town Centre and teammates were starting to communicate with me. At the back of a takeaway, one of the men ran past the bin, leaving it for me and said, that one's yours, mate. I was their mate. I was their mate, and they were choosing bins for me to lift. So, swelling with pride, I heaved the rusty bin up and onto my shoulder. It was only then that I realized there was a large hole in the base of the bin. The stuff that flowed out and down my back wasn't exactly solid, but it wasn't exactly liquid either. And it smelled worse, so much worse than anything I've ever smelled. We had the windows down the whole way back to the yard. And I like to, theme the, like to think the team were laughing with me rather than at me. In my years as a council worker, I got to ride with each of the teams. I got to know the men and heard extraordinary stories told about them. Stories that might be fact or might be fiction, but can't be repeated for legal reasons. <laughs> Despite my deficits, I worked to the best of my abilities and it was appreciated. I was treated like one of the guys, although not one who got share of the tips. I was paid £100 each week and on Friday afternoons we rode into town in a convoy to cash our checks. When I handed him a notice, I was sorry to go, but I was going to America to work on an Indian reservation. The boss didn't seem impressed. In fact, he didn't even look up. You'll be well prepared for it, he says, after 12 months working with this bunch of cowboys. Oh, Campbell and Helen, what brilliant stories. Thank you so much. It was great to have you both. And you can hear about Campbell's adventures on the reservation on podcast 257. And they are something else. Enjoy. And if, like Campbell and Helen, you have a story to tell, or many stories, or even just an idea for a story, then get in touch at 10by9.com and I'll help you to bring it to fruition. We are always looking for new storytellers. Okay, let's get on to our third story. And she's a former colleague of mine with a voice to die for. Here's Banger's own Anne-Marie Foster. I can't remember what made my indomitable Dunnickadee granny shout from our front door at him that summer night. But she did in her best Ulster Scots. 
I go away home and leave those wains be, you wee Charlie with the girls. Poor Charlie. That wasn't his name, but to protect the innocent, we'll stick to it. He stood open-mouthed at the gate in his shorts and leather sandals. His sisters, in their summer dresses and leather sandals, were opened-mouthed too. The trio, a crisp illustration from our reading books. Underneath would have been the words, where are Nip and Fluff? (laughs) My sister and I, who'd been playing with them, were used to her D dialect, but her sharpness made us howl our wishes. Charlie ran home across the road, his sisters trailing behind. We all knew something had been said. Nanny clicked us in, her mouth a sour line, both of us in a sisterly huff. Charlie and I were friends, born just days apart. I liked him because I was the eldest and so was he. We had similar feelings about the instructions to play with younger siblings. And, of course, we'd shown each other our bits. One afternoon, in that cute, curious and natural way young children do. So I knew he wasn't a girl. (laughs) The only actual Charlie I knew at the time was a distant uncle who worked at Aldergrove Airport. I suspect he was ground-based, but it was a family tradition that when a rare aeroplane flew overhead, we waved at Uncle Charlie, whom we imagined was in charge of the shiny machine. And I very much doubted that he ran around with girls while driving it. What was this mystery thing that we instinctively knew was an insult? It was like she'd called him a Protestant. (laughs) But the next day, we were all playing together again. I'd forgotten all about Charlie a decade later. I was at boarding school at the edge of the Mourns in County Down, dodging grumpy nuns, coping with the reality that it was not Mallory Towers or St. Clair's and dreaming of being a reporter or an actress. The latter might have held possibilities, as I kept up my Irish until fifth form as advised by my teacher, just in case I really made it, and had to act as Gilliga, so to speak, on a Dublin stage. The former, on reflection, my actual future career, was a small miracle, as the only television programme we were allowed to watch was Top of the Pops. 50 teenage girls in a room with fewer than 50 chairs and one tiny television. So many of the horrors passed me by, unless they were mentioned on Radio 1 or Fab 208 via my tiny red transistor radio. But that Thursday evening fix of pop culture was opening my eyes to other things. And when Nanny's sister, my great Aunt Doty, was in our house on summer Thursday evenings, and lowered her enormous spectator newspaper to tut at the television, I couldn't help laughing. Is that a man or a woman? She'd address the room as Mark Bolan, David Bowie, or the sweet mind their hearts out. And doty I'd shout, they're men and that's the style and it's great and I want platform shoes too. Then she'd fissle the paper and make us tut. Boarding school was a mire of gossip and mean girls. 
A clatter of clogs, a frisson of Peter Mark perms, waves of Jack's games in the corridors at breaks, and Jack change it in the evenings when we weren't watching Top of the Pops or studying at single desks in gym hall. A couple of other things happened too. In first form, we went for an overnight stay in Limerick to cheer on an epic senior camogie team who all snuck out of the hotel the night before the match to party. In fourth form, my friend Jane was suspended for asking if we could watch The Graduate. The headmistress, a sister, allowed it before mentioning it to a civvy teacher. Jean had proposed with superb wide-eyed innocence that it would help us prepare for university. <laughs> and in fifth form, we fought over the country girls in the library. I can only imagine the sisters thought Edna O'Brien's story was a tale of jolly but compliant farmer's wives. And all the while, they let us watch Top of the Pops, only entering the room to turn the television on and returning to switch it off and shoo us back to our dormitories. By third form, St Genevieve's was my dorm. The smell of wood, solid wood floor polish was intoxicating, but the walls of the little cubicles were just chipboard, and each one protected our modesties with a heavy jacquard curtain. They held a narrow single bed a bedside locker to hold your wash bag, and a preju, or kneeling stool, on which to say your nightly prayers. No one I knew used that piece of furniture, but it was handy to hang your uniform on. A huge room, divided into dozens of little rooms, not much privacy. And then it happened. Two girls in the year above me were suspended after they were discovered in one of those little narrow beds, together. To me and my friends, it seemed a fuss over nothing. Another mystery moment left that way as the nuns in charge were mistresses of that tired old political strategy. Say nothing and eventually it will just go away. For a while, we tried to imagine why they'd been suspended. Many of us shared beds with sisters at home. Could they have been kissing? I knew there were no Charlies allowed in St Genevieve's dormitory. None of the boy day pupils, or girls for that matter, were allowed in the dorms. Additionally, we were constantly chastised if we appeared to get too friendly with male classmates, or even tried to attract their attention. Did you know the Virgin Mary cries in heaven when she hears a girl whistle? With such pure minds, minds which didn't know of Mrs. Robinson and her bored seduction, or the filth of the country girls fermenting in the library, or the wickedness of that camogie team absenting themselves from that hotel to drink, they still won the match, how did they even suspect that anything was going on between two giggly girls in a little bed? Two years later, I was finished with that school. I wanted the freedom to whistle. At the next school, closer to home and at college, finally pursuing my journalism dream, the scales were beginning to fall from my eyes. Here was the girl who wore football shorts under her school skirt and moved with different muscles. There was the girl who almost faded away on nothing 
but yogurt. The incomprehension of my parents at my delight on landing Cassius in the school's Julius Caesar production, and not Portia, or woman in a Roman crowd. The cementing of my convictions came at the Anarchy Centre in Long Lane in Belfast on glorious 1981 Saturday afternoons. The darkest of days. Bobby Sands had died on hunger strike before that summer. And yet, our first integrated school opened that September. But in a club borrowed from the Northern Ireland Gay Rights Association and transformed for a few hours each week, I learned that it didn't matter who you were as long as you wanted the music and the soup and the bread and maybe the glue. Though that wasn't me. I was there to escape to the songs. I wore my jeans with stay free, bleached on my bum pockets and a scruffy jumper and danced. And all around were people who just wanted to bounce too and didn't care what religion or especially what sexuality you were. Boys were arm in arm, girls were kissing, the place was vibrating with anger at what we'd been told and hope at what we could achieve. We were never looking back. We were all equal, we were all sweaty, and we were all high on the raw spirit of those afternoons, and we knew we were the future. And looking back, I wonder if my wee dee granny ever questioned why her uncle never married. <laughs> and looking back, I am sad that one of those girls at boarding school never returned from that suspension, and I don't know what became of them. I hope they found their Charlottes or Charlies or happiness in being themselves. And looking back, I am so proud that my friend Charlie followed his heart and served the world in international aid organizations and married the man he loved. Maybe me showing him my bits did that. <laughs> I doubt it. Oh, Anne-Marie, what a joy to see you again and to hear those mellifluous tones. Thank you so much for your wonderful story. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 upcoming dates on our website. It includes some special events over the coming months. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who made 10 by 9 in Bangor Courthouse happen. My friends and helpers, Margaret McClory and Leanne McConville. The wonderful people of the courthouse and Alison and Rachel for making us so welcome. It was lovely to be back after four years. Thanks too to our incredible and generous Bangor audience. And of course, all our storytellers. But especially Helen Killick, Campbell Killick and Anne-Marie Foster. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>